Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. We met when we were 10. We couldn't begin dating then because she was going study with Carl and arranged a relationship with Carl's mother. At age 12, God spoke to Rachel and she dumped Carl and I moved into her life. Her maiden name was Rachel Joy Lankford. When I married her at age 21, she became Rachel Lankford Crab. So I took the joy out of her life and made her a crab. Hmm. Well, we're delighted to be here. It's going to be a fun time. Our topic tonight... A little controversial. So let's close in prayer. <laughs> what did God have in mind when in Genesis 1.26, he said, um, let's make people like us. And the word for human being there is Adam or Adam, and it literally means just that, a human being. Let's make creatures who can join our party. Because the Trinity, God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, think of it this way, they're the only small group in the history of time that's ever gotten along pretty well. And they get along pretty well because of the way they relate. And then in Genesis 1.27, they went into action, and they, the Bible there says, so God then created Adam, human beings, in his image to be like us. So why did he then add, let's make them male and female? The question I have for tonight is, what did God have in mind when he decided to make us men and women? Irenaeus, an old theologian from the third century, said this, that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. What's it mean, ladies, for you to be fully alive in your femininity? What's it mean, gentlemen, for you to be fully alive in your masculinity? What did God have in mind when he made us male and female? Now, I married a real woman. When you're married to a real woman, you guys know this, you've got two choices. Become a real man or kill yourself. Those are the only two options you have. <laughs> so I've been working on what it means to become a real man and trying to think through what it means to be fully alive as a man, what it means for you ladies to be fully alive as women, what did God have in mind? That's the question I want to be thinking about with you for a couple of minutes tonight. I guess a few more than a couple of minutes, but for a little while we're going to talk about what does it mean to be fully alive as a woman? What does it mean to be fully alive as a man? When I first began thinking about this um, some number of years ago, my wife and I actually um, decided to invite 10 women to the mountains of Colorado, we live in Denver, to spend a weekend with us so I could ask women, what, what are you all about? The Bible says, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. In other words, understand women. One of the greater challenges that the scripture offers. One guy said to me, I don't understand my wife, she's so temperamental. I said, what do you mean? He said, 90% temper and 10% mental. And I didn't know. I didn't like that either. I rebuked him for it. But I asked these women, I said, when, when do you feel most 
alive as a woman? When do you feel most glad to be, to be female? God made you female. When are you, when are you most glad to be alive as a, as a, as a woman? And um, as I asked this question to open up our weekend meeting with these ten ladies, a, a woman next to me, a very lovely younger woman, she began to cry. And so, um, you know, every guy gets uncomfortable at that point, so I turned into my clinical psychology routine, and let me see if I can help you with this. And um, I said, what are, you, what are you crying about? And she said, I just, re- just remembered how I just had such joy as a little girl. And then she began to bawl. When my daddy took me shopping. I looked at my wife for, what is wrong with her? My wife was crying. <laughs> I thought, man, I don't get this. So, so I've been thinking about her for a long time. I first started thinking about what it means to be a man when our two sons, our two sons are now 42, almost 43 and 40, now both married, we have five grandkids, and when they were maybe um, late teens, early 20s, we were sitting one day in a hot tub together, and I realized these kids are getting serious about girls, and they're probably going to get married someday, and you've got to be a real man, and you've got to be a real man whether you're single or married, but what's it mean for my sons to become men in the richest sense of the word, and I realized I didn't have a clue. So I began to think about it. Well, let me tell you what I've been thinking about for the last couple of years. In Genesis 127, God says that let's make human beings Adam, but let's make them male and female, Zakar and Nekabah. The word for female, I want you to stay with me on this. The word for female that is used in Genesis 127 is a word that when I tell you what it literally means, you're not going to like it. Stay with me. Eventually, I think you will. The word literally means one who has been, you ready for this? Punctured. Everybody clear? (laughs) That makes sense? One who's been bored through, B-O-R-E-D, one who's been bored through. In other words, one who has been opened to receive. I believe that the way God has shaped our bodies as male and female is a parable of the way he shaped our souls. A woman, God says, a female, is one who has been open to receive. And you start looking at that word in other scriptures, uh, 2 Kings 12 and verse 9. We read about the days of uh, uh, Joash was the king, and the temple was in disrepair. And so he told Jehoiada, the high priest, I want you to collect money to rebuild the temple so the people will stop going to the high places, their idolatrous sites, and begin worshiping God properly. And so Jehoiada constructed a a collection box, essentially, a, a big box, and he opened the box, the same word for female in Genesis 1, 27. He opened the box to receive, now listen carefully, he opened the box to receive whatever was going to advance the purposes of God. What's it mean to be feminine? Folks, our culture is all mixed up on this. It's all mixed up on both masculinity and femininity, and we start to look at God's perspective, and it's really a little different. Um, But once it's seen, then I believe it's very liberating. So let me see if I can help you see what I think the scriptures are teaching about this. A woman is one who has been opened in order to receive whatever accomplishes the purposes of God. That's the essence of femininity. Now develop it this way. Think about 1 Peter 3. One of the best ways to understand femininity is to look at what a woman's opportunity, and I prefer the opportunity to responsibility, what a woman's opportunity is in a marriage relationship. Bible says in 1 Peter 3, ladies, in the same way, I want you to do something with your husbands, and this is that awful S word, I want you to submit. What does submit mean? In the same way, 
I want you to do something in your marriage relationship. So in order to understand what he's talking about, you've got to say in the same way as who is what, you look back to First Peter 2, and you realize he's talking about the Lord who is hanging on the cross and who is continually entrusting himself to his Father. He's making his case, he's resting his case with his Father to, to take care of him. And he's saying, I am here not to obey sinful men. I am here to obey my Father, and I'm here to be opened to whatever accomplishes the Father's purposes. In the same way, women, I want you to submit. What does that mean? Well, the word for submit in the Greek is hupotasso. And it's a word that most basically means arrange yourself according to a larger design. Ladies, it doesn't mean do what you're told. It means arrange yourself according to a larger purpose, make decisions with a larger story in your mind, make decisions in your marriage relationship, in all relationships, but particularly in a marriage, make your decisions according to a larger story that God is telling that you want to join. Hupatasso. Anybody old enough to remember the Gomer Pyle television show? Remember how, yeah, a couple of Folks, up in my age bracket, thank you for being here. Yes, thank you, sir. You know how that story, how that uh, weekly sitcom, whatever it was, opened up? All the Marines would be walking in lockstep fashion, and Gomer Pyle would be doing this, and, and Sergeant Carter would be yelling at Gomer to open up the show. And had it been written in Greek, he'd have been saying hupotasso. He'd have been saying, arrange yourself according to a larger purpose... How does that work out in practice? If a woman is open to receive that which advances the purposes of God and then is to arrange in her relationships the way she relates to accomplish the purpose of being open to whatever accomplishes God's purpose, what's it look like in, in practice? How do we make that practical? Let me add one more thought before I look at them more carefully in terms of practical terms. In Mark chapter 10, Our Lord is talking to the Pharisees who are trying to get him, kind of silly to try to get God, but they tried to, and about the whole divorce question. And and Jesus responds by saying, if you understood what happened back in Genesis when God made people male and female, and I'll be speaking a different language, and the word for female there, the word in the Old Testament means one who is opened, the word for female that our Lord uses in Mark chapter 10 is, is a word that literally means breast. One who is open to receive and has the capacity to deeply nourish that which advances the life of God. That's what it means. Now, with that thought in your mind, let me ask you a question. I'm a psychologist. You all know what a psychologist is. It's somebody who, uh, psychology is the study of the id by the odd. <laughs> and when I was in private practice for about 10 years in South Florida... A woman came to see me, a very godly woman, a lovely Christian lady who was really in in great, great stress. And she came to my office and when I was a psychologist for full-time practice, I tell you, it was the most confusing job I ever had. People would share their struggles, you know, and I'd always carry a pen with me. So when people would share things and I had no idea what I was doing, which was most of the time, I'd take the pen out and put it up against my lip to look intelligent. Now, it's a technique you might want to try, but be very careful if you press too hard. It, you know, it, just, it doesn't look good. <laughs> but I asked her what her problem was, what she came to see me for, and she was, she was really emotional. And she said, um, 
Been married for a number of years to a man who's a leader in our church, an elder and a godly Christian man, but something's happened to him. I don't know what it is. I said, what do you, what do you mean? He said, he said to me just recently, just a couple of days ago, and I made this hurry-up appointment with you, that um, he had talked to the neighbor couple and arranged for us to swap partners. He wants me to have sex with the woman next door, and while he has sex with the... He, he wants me, the woman, to have sex with the man next door, and he wanted to have sex with the woman, and that was the plan. And, and she said to me, I, I read in Ephesians, I read in First Peter that I'm to submit. Should I submit in this situation? How many would say, yes, you ought to submit? Raise your hand. Every hand in the room should go up. What does submission mean? Relate in a way that advances the purposes of God. She ought to submit by saying no. Does that make sense to you? Submission is not whatever you say, sir. Submission is not obedience to your husband. It's obedience to God for his purposes in your relationship. Is she going to say to her husband, honey, there's no way I'm going to do that. Now, when she says that to her husband, which she ought to say, of course she ought to say no. She shouldn't do that. It doesn't advance God's purposes in her husband's life. It doesn't advance God's purposes in her life. It doesn't advance God's purposes in the couple's life next door. It, it defiles God's purposes. So, of course, she ought to submit by saying no. But as she says no, the real issue is the energy, the passion, the motivation with which she says no. Because Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 3, women, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, external things, but it should rather come from a certain attitude, a certain spirit, and the way most translations put it is a gentle and a quiet spirit. A feminine woman is a woman who accomplishes the purposes of God by relating in a particular way in every situation with a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, what do those two words mean? Now, understand, and they, I think the King James has, uh, for gentle, it has meek, and a lot of women think that means Edith Bunker kind of stuff. It doesn't mean that at all, because our Lord was referred to as, the, as, as very meek, as the meekest man that ever lived. Moses was called a meek man as well. So the issue is not sort of weak and, and uh, whatever you say, that kind of, isn't that at all? The word gentle literally means something like this. It means that I can sit in your presence, I can be in relationship with you, unafraid. I don't have to be protecting myself and, and seeing to it you don't hurt me anymore because you don't have the power to destroy me. Do you have a gentle spirit, ladies, as you relate to your sons and daughters, to your parents, to your husband, to your friends, to your roommates? What's it mean to have a gentle spirit to be able to say... Husband, even when you want me to swap partners with the neighbors next door, this hurts me deeply. I, I feel completely disrespected. I feel uncherished. I feel like you're not honoring my soul in any way at all. But there is a beauty within my soul that has been placed there by the Spirit of God. Therefore, it's undamageable. You cannot destroy the beauty in my soul. Therefore, I don't have to just find some way to back away from you so you don't hurt me or to snarl at you and try to get you to change and control you. No, I have a gentle spirit. No, honey, I'm not going to do that. Now, think about that a little bit more. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God came to each of them and pronounced them judgment. And it came to Eve... And he said to Eve, after she took part of the fruit, she said, he said to Eve, your desire, as a consequence of your sin, your desire shall be for your husband. 
Now, when you read that, you think, wait a minute, that's not a consequence of sin. That's a good thing. That's not what it means. That word for desire occurs only three times in the Old Testament, once in Genesis 3. The second time is in Genesis 4, where Cain and Abel, or Cain was having his troubles with Abel, and he was rather ticked off that God liked Abel's offerings and didn't like his, and so he was ready to plot revenge against his brother. And God came to him and said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires, same word as Genesis 3, it desires to have mastery over you. The idea of desire, there's a, a, a woman theologian named Susan Foa who wrote a book, a Westminster uh, uh, Seminary professor, a brilliant lady, who wrote a whole book on this one word. And she says it's very convincing, and all the scholars that I'm aware of, I'm no scholar, but I talk to scholars, say that the word literally means, in Eve's case, in Genesis 3, you are going to want to control your husband so you don't get damaged. That's what it means. A gentle spirit is, you can, you can hurt me, but you can't destroy me. Because there's a beauty within me that cannot be damaged. Therefore, of course, I hurt deeply at what you do, and I'm blessed richly when you do good things, but my sufficiency is in my relationship with the Lord, and he's the only one that I'm drawing life from. You can bless me and you can injure me, but you can't destroy me. Therefore, my attitude toward you doesn't have to be self-protective or viciously getting even. A gentle and a quiet spirit, First Peter says. And quiet is a word that doesn't mean don't talk too much. Quiet is a word that essentially means you're not going to pester him and nag him when he's not functioning the way you want him to. Proverbs 21 and verse 9, a man who apparently has some experience with um, women, said in verse 9, 20, uh, chapter 21, he said, it's better to live in the corner of an attic. Some of you know the verse than to live in a house with a contentious woman. The word contentious means the exact opposite of gentle. Contentious is a word that can roughly be translated um, similar to what a referee would be in a basketball game, an umpire in a baseball game. Think of, a, think of the NBA. You have five players on this side, five players on that side, and a couple of guys out there with striped shirts are the referees. What is their tool? It's a whistle. What's their training? Not how to play basketball, but how to spot infractions of the rule. And when a rule is broken, the referee... Now, if you watch the NBA, I watch it a lot. I have never yet ever, ever seen a basketball player when the ref blew a whistle because he broke a rule, turn to the ref and say, thank you. <laughs> I needed that. So are you a whistleblowing woman? If so, you're not feminine. No matter how lovely you dress, no matter how pretty you are, no matter what our world would call feminine, by God's definition, you're not feminine if you're a contentious woman as opposed to a gentle woman. Proverbs 21 and verse 19 goes on to say, it's better to dwell in a desert, in other words, the attic isn't far enough away, if you're living with a woman who is contentious and vexing. And the word vexing is the opposite of quiet. It's one who, if you don't cooperate with the way I want things to be, I'm going to get at you somehow. Is that clear? It's not feminine. 
Peter talks about beauty. And he says there's a beauty that defines a woman. Now, let me just make a, a point here that's very central, but I'm going to make it in passing. I'm going to develop it in a different way tomorrow at length. I believe our highest calling as men and women is to reveal something about God that the other sex cannot reveal as clearly. Your highest calling is not to have a good marriage. Your highest calling is not to have good kids. Your highest calling is not to be successful in your business. Your highest calling is not to be feminine in external ways. Nothing's wrong with any of that. All those things are wonderful. If you have a good marriage, praise the Lord. If you're running a successful business, great. Enjoy the blessings of God in that particular way. All that's fine. But don't think of that as what the word beauty is all about. Your calling is not to make all that happen. Your calling is to relate in a way that when people see you, they're drawn in, they're invited to a certain kind of relating that God does in perfect ways. There's a beauty about God that a woman is to reveal. There's something else about God that a man's to reveal, which we'll look at in just a little bit. What's the beauty? What's the beauty that, um, that you're to reveal? Well, Peter confuses me. The Bible confuses me a lot. My approach to exegesis is to read the Bible until I'm confused, stop there and think about it, and I can't get past a verse without uh, wondering what he's talking about half the time. But Peter's talking about women, and he says, I want you to, I, 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 I want you to adorn yourself with a beauty that is going to show itself in the way you relate with your gentle and quiet spirit, open to receive whatever advances the purposes of God. I want you to adorn yourself with the beauty, and to make clear what I'm talking about, Peter says, I want you to adorn yourself with the beauty the same way the holy women of old, that's in 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6, the way the holy women of old used to adorn themselves to make themselves beautiful. And then he says, like Sarah. Does that make sense? Sarah, a woman who, um, when God came to Abraham and said, you're going to be the father of many nations, 22 years went by. Sarah didn't get pregnant. You all know what Sarah did. She turned to her husband and said, um, I guess God didn't have me in mind to bear the child. It's interesting, by the way, the first time God came to Abraham and said, um, you're going to be the father of many nations, you're going to have a son, he didn't mention Sarah. Now, of course it was implied, no question about that. But he didn't mention you're going to have a child through Sarah. So the loophole was there for Sarah to say, why don't you go to my maidservant Hagar and have sex with her, and that will be the promised child. Well, he did. Ishmael came out, and that was not the promised child. And years went by. What is beautiful about Sarah? How many of you women have said to your daughters, be like Sarah? Well, Peter says, be like Sarah. So what's he talking about? Well, then he goes on and says, be like Sarah, who called her husband master. I don't get hung up on that. Just a term of respect for a husband. That's all it is. It wasn't, you know, that kind of thing. But it's a term of respect. Be like Sarah who called her husband master. There's only one place in the story of Abraham and Sarah, only one place in the story of Sarah, where we're told that she referred to her husband as master. It's in Genesis 18. You know the story. God had come to Abraham years earlier, 20-some years earlier, and said, you're going to be the father of many nations, you're going to have a son. Didn't happen with Sarah, went into Hagar, had Ishmael. Ishmael is now 15 years old, perhaps, thereabouts. 
And Abraham is now about 100. He's pushing 100. Sarah's 90. And God comes again to Abraham. This time, he says, you will be the father of a child through Sarah. He didn't say it the first time. He said it this time. You will be the father of a child through Sarah. You recall what happened that Sarah was inside the tent listening to the conversation? Remember the story? She laughed. And um, God, coming in a theophany, in an appearance, said to Sarah, uh, you laughed. And she said, no, I didn't. And God said, well, I kind of know everything. And yeah, you did, actually. (laughs) I guess I did. Okay, I admit it. But the thing that she was laughing about, she said to herself when she heard that Abraham and she were going to have a child. The first child, she's 90 years old. He's 100 years old. And she laughed saying, will I again have this pleasure with my master? And the word pleasure is a word that literally has to do with sexual activity, sexual intercourse. Will I again have, will we, are we going to have sex again? He's 100. She's 90. They haven't made love for, we don't know how long. But a while. 10 years. I don't know. And God comes and says, you're going to have a baby through Sarah. It's going to happen in one year. Why did God say one year? I think he was giving Abraham three months to work up his nerve. <laughs> and eventually, what obviously happened, and don't hear this as an, any attempt to be flippant or irreverent. I really don't want you to hear it that way. What is quite obvious is at some point, Abraham came to Sarah and said, God said it, I believe it, let's do it. (laughs) And Sarah opened herself to the beauty of God's purposes through her otherwise dead life, reproductively. Trusting in the promises of God, she was saying, I am willing to surrender myself, to open myself, like Jehoiada with the offering for the temple rebuilding, I'm willing to open myself with only the purpose of faith, with only the energy of faith, because there's nothing, there's nothing reasonable from a human perspective about this at all, because I'm way past the age of childbearing, and yet my husband is going to come in unto me, and I'm going to open myself up, and that's the beauty that God is telling Sarah, that God is telling women to be like Sarah. Does that make any sense? Can you see that? What's the problem? Well, lots of problems, but one that stands out to me the most women aren't convinced that the deepest part of their soul is beautiful. If I had a chance to talk to each of you ladies, and to hear your background stories, I'd hear stories that convinced you that there was nothing within you that could be cherished. And you've lost any sense. Is there really an, an, un, an indestructible and undamageable beauty in the core of my being? Can I actually relate to my husband, to other friends, to a boyfriend, to a son and daughter, to a roommate? Can I really relate in a way that isn't protective that isn't going to go into hiding because way down deep within me, I'm not sure if anything is there. 
What do you suppose is the core terror of a woman? The word that makes sense to me, and I've talked about this with a number of women, I'm sure there's better words that you'll resonate with more than the word I'm going to suggest, but this is a word that captures at least the the theology of it, and I think the practical reality of it as well. I believe the core terror of a woman is invisibility. Anybody see me? Do you want to see me? Husband, when you look at me, do you see something that just draws you as I'm open and lets you see who I really am? Does the man want to move toward and enter into the, the deepest part of the woman's soul and to cherish and to handle warmly and gently and sensitively? Is that what a woman expects when she gets open or is she like this? It was years ago when I was chairman of a counseling department at Colorado Christian University. Got a, some of my faculty members came to me and said, Larry, we got a problem on campus. We have a student, 26-year-old young woman, physically a beautiful woman, who's causing all kinds of division on campus. She's just uh, snippy and critical of everything and just undermining all that we're trying to do in this master's in biblical counseling. And, and um, she, she's causing trouble. And you're the chairman, so you've got to deal with it. And I thought, I'll resign. But I couldn't, typical man, by the way. Um, Made an appointment. She was told to make an appointment with me. She did, 3 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, whatever it was. And I'm in my office waiting for this young lady to knock on my door. And she knocked the door. And I opened the door. And there she stood, physically a very beautiful woman. And she stood in a way that terrifies a man. I don't know how to do it real well, so forgive me, but... The door opened, and it was literally like this. She went, so, you going to kick me out of the program? <laughs> Internally, I thought, yes. <laughs> yes. I thought, well, it's not right. So I said, well, come on in. Sure, what do you want? Come on in. I'll come in. What do you want? Uh, sit over here. Okay, I'll sit here. What do you want? I want to ask you a question. Sure, what do you want? <laughs> Folks, I'm not describing a beautiful woman right now. And I'm thinking to myself, she's sitting there, she's terrified. Nothing attractive, nothing inviting about her, nothing invitational about her, open to receive whatever would advance God's purpose is, but there's something she's defending against and maneuvering with her strength to control and to be in control like Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. You're going to be in control so nobody can hurt you again like I've been hurt before. And so I said, I want to ask you a question. Do you have any want? I said, I want to know what happened when... You turned 13. What? I want to know what happened when um, a couple of weeks before you turned 13, your dad came to you and said, Honey, I want to take you out to celebrate your 13th birthday, your movement into uh, womanhood. I'd like to take you out for a very special dinner because I, I just cherish your soul so much. The chance to be your father, I just want to celebrate your identity, who you are as a young lady. What was it like, I said to her, when your dad said, let's go shopping. Let me take you out. What was it like when you went to this beautiful store and all these pretty dresses, you picked out, you went to the dressing room and put on a bunch of dresses and came out and twirled in front of your dad and your dad was just glowing with very healthy, wonderful, clean, holy joy as he watched his beautiful little girl dressed up in her beautiful new dresses and finally picked one out. What was it like when you picked it out and your dad said, yes, honey, it's cost a lot, but you're worth more. Let's buy that one. It's perfect. 
What was it like when Saturday came for the big time with your father and your dad spent half the day washing the car? What was it like when it was time to go out and your dad came out with his best suit on and his shoes were shined and you came out of your bedroom, your mother had been in there helping get dressed and fixing your hair and you came out looking beautiful as a little 13-year-old girl. What was it like when your, and your dad um, took you out to the car and opened the car door and you kind of went in and he closed the door and you drove off and you went to this wonderfully beautiful restaurant? What was it like when you got to the restaurant your dad held the seat for you and you kind of sat in there and he sat across from you and you ordered this wonderful meal? What was it like when as the meal came to a conclusion, your dad reached across and put his hand on yours and said, I, I just want to tell you, there's a beauty within you that I cherish. And the privilege of nourishing that beauty as your father is one of the greatest joys of my life. What was it like when all that happened for you? I went on for about 20 minutes. What was she doing by this time? And she was crying. Why? It never happened. Of course it never happened. Had it happened, she wouldn't be cheating like she was today. So what's a woman to do? How how does a a woman emerge in God-revealing femininity? The openness of God, the Trinity in a perfect relationship from eternity past to eternity future, but they're an open community and they can't bear bear to be without us. And so they invite us openly. Jesus, reflecting this particular character of God in Matthew 11, come unto me, I invite you. Talking to Jerusalem, how often I would have brought you into me as a mother hen gathers her chicks, a feminine image, but you would not come. I'm inviting you. A woman is called to reveal the beauty of God's invitational nature. But if you're not convinced you have that beauty within you, what are you going to do? Well, here's a thought. Let me... um, This, by the way, is what's called an overhead projector. (laughs) I uh, try to resist modernity. I don't use a computer for anything. My computer's a pen. This is how you turn it on. It's very simple. Uh, I've written 20-some books with the same pen. I've never used a computer. I've never sent an email in my life, and I intend to go to my grave with that kind of pride. <laughs> I want to draw something here to give you a little feel for what it might mean for a, a woman to think very seriously about her calling to relate the way the Trinity relates in order to reveal the beauty of their relationality so that the woman who relates with a gentle and a quiet spirit, not a contentious and a vexing spirit, who opens herself up, not to sin, not to ugliness, but who opens herself up to receive and to nourish whatever advances God's purpose. And a woman says, sounds good, but I'm terrified. Sounds good, but I'm scared. Larry, you have no idea how badly I've been hurt. What do you do if that's been your background? Rachel had the privilege and the joy, as she told me afterward, of chatting with a number of women um, this morning. And I think she shared a little bit of this with uh, women there, and I'll just mention it briefly now, that um, I did meet Rachel when we were 10 years old. 
we had our first date, if you will, when we were 12. At age 12, we had a youth group together, and we <clears throat> took a walk, and I held her hand. <laughs> Remember how it works when you were beginning to date, a boy and a girl walking together, and you kind of dangle your hands, kind of hoping they touch so you can grab? <laughs> my buddy Jimmy was walking behind me, and he saw what I was doing. He reached up and took my hand, and I grabbed it, and I was all excited, <laughs> thinking it was Rachel's, and I was, oh, man, it got me so angry. <laughs> 